Okay. All right. It's good to be with you guys. Um, let's pray. We'll get started here. Heavenly Father, thank you again uh, for bringing your people together, this precious flock that you love, that you've called to yourself, to gather together to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to sing your praises and to listen to your scriptures and to hear your word preached and taught. Lord, we ask that you would increase our faith, strengthen the feeble, humble the proud, bring us to a deeper knowledge of you and your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. We'll get started here today. Um, once again, thank you, Christian. I feel like I just thanked you, you know, a couple weeks, a couple Sundays ago. Um, Christian's too modest to say it. So, last Saturday at about 10.30 p.m., I uh, realized that my voice would not um, hold under the strain of preaching, was still getting over, still getting down with the sickness, so uh, I reached out to Christian, and uh, he picked up and agreed to preach the word to you. So, uh, Christian, thank you. My heart is grateful. You have no idea. Um, but anyway, uh, honor to whom honor is due. We are going to take a brief break once again from the book of Second Peter. We've been going through that uh, verse by verse. It just so happens that it is, it is a personal custom that when we get into the Christmas season and even into New Year's, I like to take a, some time away from the text that we're, we're going through and, and, and give some personal uh, reflections, uh, some teachings on other passages of Scripture just to encourage you to kind of get back to, to some of the basics, even if the teaching has depth to it, um, sort of to take you guys back to Christ, right? And, and to get up here and to simply uh, proclaim Him and to go to those texts which specifically speak of Him. And of course, a couple Sundays ago, we, we went through Romans chapter 1. We talked about the gospel as the power of God, proclaiming Christ and how the righteousness of God is revealed in that. And so, I was meant to uh, preach this passage from the Gospel of John uh, last Lord's Day, and perhaps its proximity to Christmas and New Year may have given it a little more punch. You know, I kind of like to, to refresh us. I like to take all the advantages possible around Christmas time and even New Year's. Hey, if you're a resolution-type person, if you're a person who likes to reflect on the previous year and then renew certain commitments, I'm all for looking, that, looking at that through the lens of the gospel and Christ's continual redeeming work. I think it's beneficial, so let's take it and run with it and benefit from it. And so what I wanted to return to was, how, was basically how God has revealed himself in Christ. And the fact that God from all eternity has stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ to become our Lord and Savior and to give us every spiritual blessing in Himself. And I wanted to uh, give us an opportunity to really refresh ourselves with those foundational truths as to who Christ is and what He means. What He means specifically to and for His people. Remember, we get through the... Uh, the season of Christmas where we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And John chapter 1 is such an appropriate chapter to 
uh, refresh ourselves with those truths. So if you're not there already, please open your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. The Gospel according to John. Our passage will be verses 14 through 18. More than likely, we will get through verse 15 today. Sermon title is, And the Word Became Flesh. I didn't think it need much, needed much doctoring, but one of the main things that I want us to do in terms of a, a subheading of the Word becoming flesh is rejoicing in God's revelation. So what I want to present to you regarding the person of Jesus Christ today is praiseworthy things, right? Paul tells us that whatever is praiseworthy, to what? To think upon these things to chew on them, to meditate upon them, to let them be at the forefront of our minds knowing that they will transform us as that truth that we bring up is the truth from Scripture. So these are the praiseworthy things that we want to call to our minds this morning. Please follow along with me as I read. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For upon his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father He has explained Him. I mean, there is so much packed into that. It is said of the Gospel of John what it is. It is is, uh, shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. There's just... John speaks so clearly, and yet underlying his words is a theology so dense and so rich that we could move so slowly through the Gospel of John if we were preaching it uh, verse by verse, and yet never really exhaust all of the precious truth uh, that is in this book. And yet we will take some time this morning and maybe a couple Lord's Days from now to consider uh, such a beautiful and rich text uh, such as this. So when it comes to the Word becoming flesh, the first thing we want to rejoice in concerning God's revelation is to rejoice in God's personal revelation of Himself. God's personal revelation of Himself. Let's go ahead and look at verse 14. John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see the personal nature of this. Of what John calls the Word. So to get a little background to kind of catch us up, normally if we would preach through the Gospel of John, we would start in verse 1. No kidding. So go ahead and look with me at at verse 1. We're going to find out who this Word is. In the beginning, John writes, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did did not comprehend it. So immediately, we see quite a few things regarding the identity and work of the Word in these opening five verses. For one, we see that the Word was in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. So we find out that it was was eternal. The Word is eternal. There when creation, before creation began. It's almost giving us a theological background of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. 
In the beginning was the Word. So the Word is eternal. We know that about the Word. Here's another thing. Going on, it says, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So two things right there. We find out that the Word was with God, was with the Father, but the Word itself, too, was also divine, is divine. The Word is God. Furthermore, we see this. All things were made through Him. So the Word is not only eternal and divine, it is also Creator. The Word creates. It is through Jesus Christ. It is through the Word that God created the heavens and the earth. We find out that it is through the Word that all the cosmos are kept in order, upheld. The entire created order, even visible and invisible, is held together by the Word of power, right? the living Word. Without that Word, all creation would come undone. Here's another one. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So here's another thing. The Word is triumphant. We find that the darkness cannot defeat it, cannot overcome the Word. The Word will prevail. So even in those short five verses, we come to discover many initial things about who this Word is. The Word is divine. The Word is with God. The Word is eternal. Right? The Word is Creator. And the Word is triumphant. Of course, we could add that to verse 4, that the Word is life-giving. Right? The Word gives life, gives light. I mean, even at the, the initial introduction in this this great book of John tells us that the Word is personal. It's not just a thing or an essence or a force. The Word is personal. It interacts with His creation and saves His creation. So John, unique to the Gospels, puts a heavy emphasis on this Word Word. So what does it mean? What is, why would John use such a, a, a word to describe Jesus Christ? What's the point he's making here? What is, what is he accomplishing? See, we hear the word word in English. We typically think of letters composed in such a way as to make an expression. Words are spoken. Words are given in order to express a reality or a concept. And really, we need words. I mean, things are getting increasingly PC to the point where you wonder if we should just relate to one another in grunts. However, God has given us words. God has given us words to speak, words to understand. And without them, we can't understand anything in any significant way. So right off the bat, in a raw sense, the word is a divine expression of something, at bare minimum. But of course, as we read through the Gospel of John, even these opening verses, we find that a word is much more than an expression. Think of where John's going, right? And think of how he ends this book. This book is written so that what? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is a Gospel for all people, right? This is a Gospel meant for Jew and Gentile. That all who believe, believing ones, will not perish but have eternal life. So when he talks about the Word, he's talking more than just mere 
expression than mere terms. He's talking to Jew and Gentile, which is significant because in the first century, you understood society as having two tiers, right? Two sections of society. There was Jew, and then there was non-Jew, or the Gentile, the, the, the nations, the pagans. And so, when Jesus Christ is born, and He steps into a human body, we see the Gospel, the Gospel of Jesus Christ taking shape. Think of it in Luke 2. This has already been announced, right? The angel of the Lord says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, right? So the good news wasn't just going to go to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, which shall be for all people. Why? For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So we take that and apply it to what John is saying, and John is using this word logos in the Greek to make a universal appeal, a universal presentation of the gospel. So how do we understand this word logos? Very important. See, depending on whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, you would understand logos a couple of different ways. Let's talk about the Jewish understanding of the Logos because this is going to lend itself to understanding really the depth and scope of a text like this in addition to the work of Christ and how we understand Him. So primarily, if you were Jewish, in the Old Testament, the Word of God, the Word spoken, was often personified as as instrumental in the carrying out or the execution of God's will. In Psalm 33, 6, we read this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Right? By, there's that, the word in action. When the word is spoken, something is accomplished. Something happens. And it happens completely. Going back to Genesis 1, 1. Or Genesis chapter 1. And God said, Let there be light. And what happened? There was light! <laughs> His word was irresistible in its creativity. First there was not light, and then there was light. It was also used for revelation, right? To reveal truth. Not just creativity, but truth as well. When we talk about the Word of God, typically what do we mean? We mean the Bible. We mean the written, spoken Word of God. Same way you understood it. Notice if you read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, what does it say? And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Right? That God was going to speak. He was going to use His mouthpiece, the prophets, to make Himself known. To make His will known. And of course, when that happens, then the word of the Lord goes forth, unless you're Jonah, then you run for a while, get swallowed by a fish, puked out, and then you go and preach to the Ninevites. It's funny, but it's true. <laughs> That's how, in the, in, in the Jewish culture, you would understand the word. And that would be, what we'd say, an accurate way of understanding the word. So, of course, for his Jewish readers, when John introduces the Logos, he is, in a sense, pointing them back. He's directing them back to this Old Testament work of revelation, right? where God is speaking and He's revealing Himself in a particular way, making His truth known, making His will known, right? speaking to His people. 
And then you have the Greek side. In Greek philosophy, it's a little more sticky. I'll try not to get uh, embroiled in all of the details, but basically understood, the term logos was used to describe quite a variety of things. Among them was what we could call the intermediate agency by which God created material things and also communicated with those material things. The logos was also seen as that which held creation together. That law which kept everything in order. You know, we could, we could understand it as some have described a, a binding principle, right? What is it that's keeping all this matter together? What's it that's keeping all this matter in motion? Well, the Greeks understood that as, as the logos. Even though they couldn't quite explain it, they would say, this must be the explanation. It's not like they un- accidentally um, stumbled upon the revelation of Jesus Christ but they had some understanding that there was something out there that made it all work. Also in the Greek worldview, the Logos was thought of as sort of a bridge, a bridge to the gap between the transcendent God and the material universe. One thing in Greek teaching was sort of this impassable chasm between God and man. There There was a division, right? Especially if you're familiar with with Gnosticism and certain sects of Greek thought that the material order was somehow so corrupt and so wicked, what would God have to do with it, right? The two were totally separated. There was a sense in which Greeks also thought that God was ultimately unknowable. You kind of see that in in Islam itself. For all that Islam teaches about God, for all that Islam purports to know about God, what does it say about God ultimately? God cannot be known, which is, which is an Islam-destroying teaching, a contradiction. So there was that sort of train of thought in Greek philosophy as well. So when you take the Jewish understanding of the word, especially in the first century, and the Greek understanding of the word or the logos, however consistent what they believed were with Christianity, they still fall short. On one hand, the Jews failed to see that the Word of God would be most clearly and expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. They failed to see that God's ultimate revelation would be to take on human flesh and make God known in a profound, personal way. They failed to see that God's Word revelation would take on flesh and bring many sons to glory. They couldn't fathom that. Greeks missed it as well. Going back to this error, uh, the fact that they believed that God couldn't be known in a personal way. God was transcendent, distant, impersonal. Right? Even though it was a mediating principle, it was not personal. The thought of it, it would be scandalous to say that this logos could take on human flesh and interact with people and walk with people and know people and see them face to face and even, I'll go a step further, and fellowship with people to share a common life. That was unthinkable in Greek culture. So here's what John is doing, I believe. He is introducing Jesus, by introducing Jesus as the Logos, as the Word, he's drawing from a concept, a familiar one, both to Jews and Gentiles of his day that they would have been familiar with, and he's using that as a sort of starting or beginning point 
as he introduces them to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But one thing we don't want to do is mistake John's intent. He's not being theologically or philosophically diplomatic. He's not trying to be a man-pleaser. He's not doing this, hey, let's, let's meet here halfway on neutral ground, right? No, he's using a concept familiar to bring this full reality of Christ to bear. He's going to tell them the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth concerning the Logos as he is moved by the Holy Spirit to describe, even based on his own eyewitness account of Christ as the Son of God. And here's what we see. You will see Jesus Christ not as a mere mediating principle like the Greeks perceived, but a personal being, fully divine, fully human. One thing we have to understand about the Logos, when the Logos took on human flesh, he did not cease to be God. Certain divine prerogatives were given up. We know that from Philippians chapter 2. But he did not cease to be fully divine. Jesus himself shows us the Father. He shows us God. He reveals us to him in a personal, powerful way. And where he is able to introduce his readers to the true Logos of God in Jesus Christ, the living Word of God, fully God, fully man, who came to reveal God in truth to all mankind, both Jew and Gentile, and to redeem all of those who believe in His name. The Gospel is understood in such a beautiful way by understanding the Lord Jesus Christ as the true living Logos. Right? He's divine, eternal, creative, triumphant, but He's personal and human. That's what we want to understand that we rejoice in God's personal revelation of Himself. So we not only understand what the Word is, we even understand what the Word does. What did this Word do? Well, let's read on. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only did this, not only was this Word divine, eternal, creative, triumphant, and personal, and human, but this Logos desires to dwell with man. I look at this, and I think this is one of the most truth-packed phrases in the entirety of Scripture. The Word became flesh. I mean, sit and think about that for a while. Of all that entails, we could never go through all of the truth packed into that. But we can begin by understanding that this is true. That the Word became flesh. That the Word took on a real human body. A mortal body and stepped into time and space. And that if this, this is so pivotal, friends, that if it never happened, redemption never would have been accomplished. So when John is saying here, he's explaining the fact of the matter, but he's also explaining something that had to happen. There was no other way for redemption to be accomplished and applied except for the Word, the living Word of God to take on human flesh. We find this truth explained in Hebrews 2.14 regarding Jesus. He too shared in their humanity so that by His death He might destroy Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Go down a few more verses in verse 17. It says, For this reason He had to be made like His brothers in every way in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that He might make atonement for the sins of the people. We know that it was Adam that fell, right? Adam sinned. 
and pass that sin and death principle on to his progeny. So if it was man who sinned, then a man must die in order to make atonement. And that is why it was necessary for Jesus to take on human flesh. Word became flesh. God became man. Now, now look at the implications here. Some observations that are necessary for us to understand the full import of this. It says the Word became flesh, right? Took on human, human, deity adding, uh, adding humanity to himself. And he dwelt among us. Most of you are familiar with this word dwell. It means to tabernacle or to pitch a tent. What this implies is that you desire or intend to stay in a particular place. When you pitch a tent, it's not kind of like we do, you know, when, you know, with our weak sauce camping and glamping and whatnot, we go out into the wilderness for a while and we take all the modern comforts with us as we possibly can, except for indoor plumbing. But we want to be as comfortable and as warm as we possibly can. And then what do we do? We get up the next day, oh, that was great, let's pack up and go home. But this, this idea of dwelling refers to making something your home. So you are going to stay in that place for, for a while. And this is what the Logos did. Took on human flesh and purpose to dwell among man. So imagine this scenario here. Especially as it entails the God of the universe taking on human flesh and dwelling among man. Imagine for a minute you lived in a poor village, right? Illustrative of planet Earth. You live in a poor village, and a man who may seem familiar but you never really met before moves into town, and he builds a palace. He buys a big, a large tract of land, and he builds a huge, luxurious palace with every comfort and joy imaginable. And he spends a great amount of time on the detail, the design, the construction, and it dwarfs every other building in the area. And you think, man, what a glorious building. I, I want to live there. Man, what's this, what's this shack I've been living in? What's this two-story Dorito bag I've been putting over my head and dwelling in for a while? This is worthless. Look at this house. And much to your joy, the man who builds this house starts to invite people in your village freely to come in and to enjoy the, the pleasures and comforts of his house which he built and which he owned. What does this tell you? What does this tell you about this man initially? He wants to be close to you. Right? He wants to live with you. Now I realize we, live in, we, we do live in a time where we are very suspicious of God. What does God want from me, right? But at face value, this guy wants you around. He wants you to enjoy the palace with him. He wants you to be in his presence. He wants you to make your home with him. In the book of Revelation, when these judgments are meted out, they are described as being meted out upon those who dwell upon the earth. Now, that doesn't mean a universal, that God is just taking his heavenly sword and smiting everyone indiscriminately. No, he's talking about a certain class of people. Those who dwell on the earth, or dwell in the land, as it were, are those who have made this earth their home. 
the order that is fading away, they have staked their claim and said, this is my home, I belong here. There's no eternal perspective, there's no heavenly mindedness, there's no desire to walk with God and to fellowship with his son. And so that same commitment is in view here, that when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, he is calling a people to himself that he can make a home with an eternal dwelling place with a permanent home. So there's much more beyond this atheistic mindset which says, this is all there is. The Christian understands that there is much more than this, right? We understand that due to Christ's work and ministry on this earth, that what there is is being transformed, right? Everything is being subdued under the authority of Jesus Christ, this world is being transformed as the gospel is proclaimed and believed. So there's much more than what we merely see. And so that's the other thing we want to we understand about the Word becoming flesh. But there is a restoration taking place. Like we, can't, we can't miss what God is doing here through His Son. He is bringing in the restoration and ultimate exaltation and glorification of the cosmos to bear. This is really where it starts. I mean, not since Genesis 1 and 2 has God ever dwelt in such close proximity to man. So when God becomes man in the person of Christ, He is expressing His desire to be with us. To to call us into His presence in a personal way way. And it's not only proximity in view here, it's not only a closeness to the, to the Savior, but it's, there's also a time aspect that when the gospel is believed and God takes residence with us, this is a permanent ordeal. Don't miss that about the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the Logos. Here's a, here's a good uh, passage that actually looks forward to this work. And it was our scripture reading Last Sunday, it was from Ezekiel 20, or 37, verses 24 through 28. Listen to this carefully and see how this fades into John chapter 1. The Lord says this, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons, and their sons' sons forever. Forever. That's not all. And, my, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and they will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place, here's that word, dwell, to make a home with. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. I would put forth to you this morning, friends, that what John is describing is the fulfillment of this very plan, that Jesus is starting this work. The Lord says, my servant David. You realize that David has been dead for a while at this time. So he can't be talking about 
King David. He's talking about the true David, the Messiah, right? who is going to be king over his people, the, the one shepherd. Jesus Christ is the true shepherd. They will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Why? Because through the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, instituted by the blood of Christ, what do we have? We have the law now written on our hearts so that we desire to do the will of God, to obey His law, to, to keep His commandments and rejoice in them. And they will live on the land that I give to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers live, and they will live on it. Where is, can we talk about this, where is this place? Where is this land of Jacob? Where is Israel now? Wherever Jesus Christ is believed upon. That is where true Israel is. I will make a covenant of peace with them, this everlasting covenant, right? This is the new covenant in view here. Not a rehashing of the old, but a new covenant, a life-giving, everlasting covenant. And I will set my sanctuary in the, or their midst forever. Now, one of the reasons this is so profound to not only the people in Ezekiel's time, but even the first century Jew, the, the Shekinah glory of God was not in the temple in the first century. Did, I would say God honored their obedience. But in the book of Ezekiel, it, that, that, is, that is the book that chronicles the departure of the glory from the temple. So that, that would be a devastating event to be in Israel at that time and witness. So to hear the prophet say that he will set his sanctuary in their midst forever is a return of the glory of God to dwell with his people. That is a, a huge and precious promise. Especially when you may, be, may have been among the number who saw the glory depart. Remember, it departed in stages. It didn't just go out the temple and leave, right? Now it was the threshold for a while, then it went over the mountains, hung over there for a while. And the warnings came, and the warnings came, and Israel kept rebelling, and they would not repent. And finally the glory departed, and then judgment came. Well, when Jesus now is here as the Logos become flesh, the glory has returned to Israel. The glory has returned to Israel. And He is their God. And they will be His people. And in its fullest sense, what, what the Lord is describing here is the church. The place of His dwelling. And to prove that, verse 28, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Is God currently sanctifying His people? Yes. And that is one of our testimonies to the nations. Right? That God is sanctifying us. But that God is dwelling with us. That His sanctuary is in our midst. How do we know that? Is that the fact that we are now the sanctuary of the true and living God? We are, we are the dwelling place of God. Forever. Because of what Christ has done, and through the Holy Spirit that Jesus left for us, we know that God dwells with us. And we see this also in, 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 a, in, a, grad, in a gradual and growing sense. It's one of my favorite passages. Revelation chapter 21.3. Behold, the dwelling, right? The tent. This is that giant cube. I call it the giant heavenly or celestial board, right? The 1,200 meter by or 1,200 mile by 1,200 mile by 1,200 mile, heavenly cube that descends from heaven. 
says, The dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell, that is, pitch his tent with them, and they shall be his people. You realize that John is repeating in Revelation 21 what he is writing in John chapter 1. And these two, and these two books probably were, weren't written that far apart, but John is describing this reality of God making his home with men fully coming to bear as it is descending, right? But the presence of God is not only with his people, but as the gospel is preached and as it is believed, the presence of God continues to expand, right? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That is the reality we are witnessing. That is the reality that we are participating in as we go forth in power and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the fulfillment of a great promise. Not merely to be saved from our sins, right? Not merely to go to heaven when we die, but to experience the fullness of joy over the fact that God is dwelling once again with His people. It's amazing that we can... This just breaks my heart, guys, and I pray that you would, if you have to, to repent from this mindset. But as we witness all these terrible things going on, right? All these disasters happening all over our world, whether that be natural disaster, whether that be disease, whether that be rampant political corruption. It's sad that we look at that and despair and even forget practically that God is with us, that God dwells with us, and that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that God will overcome this that He will have His way with this world, and that He will dwell in fullness with man. It is inevitable that this dwelling, that this tent, will cover the entire world. To dwell with God, to see His manifold kindness expressed in His presence, to see the, the King of His beauty, the King in His beauty, this is exactly what John goes on to describe. We'll get to the second one, talking about rejoicing in God's revelation. First, first we see that in verse uh, 14, how it's personal. And then we see it secondly, that He has given us a powerful revelation of Himself. Right? This is God being revealed in Christ. So it is a powerful revelation of Himself. Powerful in the sense of that which is profound, that which is striking, that which is transforming. Note what John says. He says, and we saw his glory. So the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. So John is giving testimony to this. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is to, to see God's glory. You don't see God's glory and leave unchanged. That is a powerful encounter. That is a life-transforming encounter, to see the glory of God. And once again, based on what we know from the Old Testament, something that should strike us as quite scary, right? to see the glory of God, to see that radiant presence of God, to behold it with our own eyes. And yet John is, is boasting about this. We saw this. What a great thing to behold. We saw His glory. John, we know, is an eyewitness, one of the few people throughout biblical history who could make such a claim. We know that he sees Christ 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, he sees the glorified Christ when he's writing the, the book of Revelation. Glory should be the desire of every image bearer to behold the glory of God. It is the glory of God that speaks of his presence, right? His, his nearness to us. This is the supreme desire of every godly man to look upon the glory of the Lord. Think of Moses. I think this is where he's drawing this from primarily. Exodus 33. It's a great chapter. There's so much going on here. But in Exodus 33, most of you are familiar with this story. Uh, Moses is on, is on the, uh, Mount Sinai, and he's talking to the Lord, and he says, show me your glory, right? Think, oh, that's a bold, that's a bold request. That's a dangerous request. But he says, show me your glory. And what did God do? He, he said yes. He said, I, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I would contend that God's glory is that he is good. So he's not saying no. He's describing how he will manifest his glory to Moses. So he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Right? And what does he proclaim? He says, you know, I, I the Lord, right? Bounding in loving kindness, slow to anger. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Right? All of those things he is he is revealing to Moses, bounding in loving kindness and truth. He is the one who keeps loving kindness for thousands, right? Forgives sins, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we see God's grace, compassion, as well as his righteousness on display. So God, in a sense, is he is giving an exposition of his glory. Let me unpack the glory for a minute here before you, Moses. My glory is that I am gracious. My glory is that I am compassionate. My glory is that I keep loving kindness. But my glory is also that I am righteous. My glory is that I am good. So all these things, we would say, well, they're, they're attributes or characteristics of God. I mean, really, we can't understand God without them. They're, they're what make God God. God is all those things. We can't speak of God but to speak of His love and His wisdom, His knowledge, right? His righteousness. His compassion and His justice. All those and more. And so when John says that, we saw His glory, we say we take John's word out. That's exactly what he saw on display in Christ. All that God means to reveal of Himself to man is seen, is beheld in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what John says. We, we saw it. Once again, I think as believers in faith, we see it too. We behold the glory as the glory dwells with us. The glory dwells within our midst. This is the, the desire of the psalm. Listen to Psalm 26.8. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Right? There is an understanding that what made the house of God, what made the temple so, so attractive, so lovely, was that God's glory was there. His presence was there with His people. So to see God in His glory was to behold Him in His fullness. To kind of have the full experience. To know that God was near. The godly man craves it, and why wouldn't we? We are created to live in the presence of God. We are created to delight in the presence of God. What happened in the Garden of Eden was the most unnatural thing that man could do to himself. The most backward, perverse, wicked thing that man could do was to make a choice so that he would be alienated from the presence of God. That was not, that was, there was something that goes beyond that 
decision of Adam from, from, from just understanding it merely as a bad decision or a goof-up. That was wicked. That was hard-hearted rebellion that Adam did. It was so backwards from who man is created to be and how he is supposed to function as God's image bearer and vice regent on this earth, as God's representative. We are meant, we are called to behold the glory, to understand the glory, to rejoice in the glory. But we understand this glory in a particular fashion. I don't want you to look at that glory and just think, oh, this amazing, awesome, blinding light. The glory is meant to be perceived in a particular way. And as we understand Christ, you see that the glory is not so much meant to blind as it is to give us spiritual, spiritual vision. The glory is so that we see God as He actually is. To see God in truth. How do we understand this glory? He says this, We beheld His glory, but in a particular fashion. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. So the glory here is defined. It is to be understood, not in a vague way, but in a very particular way in regards to the Word. We saw His glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Let's, let's begin with that. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father. So this glory is the glory that Jesus has by, by His being the Son of God. That is the second person of the Trinity. That there is a particular glory resident in His being, essence, and nature. All that glory was in His person and revealed. Right? To be understood in, in Christ. In Him as the Son of God. The Son of God who walks among His people. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So let's understand this word only begotten. It, does, it doesn't merely mean only child, right? That we think, oh, there was one. Right? Even though we understand in this case that it's true. We don't want to go down too much of a rabbit trail. But understand this term in the Greek, uh, monogonase. A lot of study, a lot of scholarly work has been done regarding this word. But to understand it, we, kinda, we can go to a biblical parallel and understanding Abraham's relationship with his son Isaac. So in Genesis chapter 22, when God comes to Abraham for that great test to sacrifice his son, what does he tell Abraham? He says, Abraham, take now your son, your only son whom you love, and go to Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. So we have, when we look at that, we have to understand something right away. Isaac was not Abraham's only son. Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. Right. So in order to understand the full, the full uh, import of this word uh, only begotten, we have to look a little deeper. What, is it, what does it mean? When God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, the best way of understanding this is, 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 is according to a standard or kind that is not so much only, but alone, unique, or incomparable. What I'm saying here is that only begotten is a qualitative term. Right? A term of quality, of kind, not just number, right? not just quantity. And of course, we can see this uniqueness all over Christ's life and ministry. He was the unique, incomparable Son of God. The Son to whom belonged all the privileges and inheritance. 
And so when, Abraham, so when God speaks of Isaac that way, to Abraham, he is, he is acknowledging Isaac in similar fashion, that Isaac wasn't one, his only son, but he was the son of promise, right? The son of privilege, the son of inheritance. And in the same sense, Jesus is that. He is the unique son of God. The one who was tempted yet without sin. The one who could alone forgive sins. The one alone in whom God was well pleased. The one in whom we have redemption. Right. Just a short sample of the ways, the variety of ways in which Jesus is unique. Listen to what John Piper says on this. He says, when John says, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, he means... We have seen His glory, glory as it really is, the glory of the Son of God. So we never understand the glory of God until we perceive it in the Son of God. You don't know what glory is until you've seen it in Christ. And so to see the glory of God in Christ is to see the glory of God as it is meant to be seen. So Jesus alone, uniquely, incomparably, could put the glory of God on display. And let me tell you something. As much as, we, as much as I stand up here and proclaim that to you, that is only understood through the eyes of faith. We never see that until we believe. Right? To the unbeliever, this is foolishness. This is a waste, this is a waste of words. Think of Isaiah 53.2. Speaking of the Messiah, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. See, those are through blind eyes that do not perceive the glory of God in Christ. But as believers, we have that immense privilege to behold His glory. And in beholding His glory, we behold all that is good, all that is praiseworthy, all that is righteous and merciful and powerful and beautiful about God. And the whole world misses this in their unbelief. But we are called to behold the glory and to see God as He truly is. And we see God as He truly is in Christ. Christ gives us the full vision of who God is and all of His glorious, precious perfections. I guess we can close with this part of the text. Look at this. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. And I would say that is the peculiar way in which we understand the glory if you have perceived the glory of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, you have seen the fullness of grace and truth. So here we didn't just receive a little bit of grace of truth, right? Not a smattering of each, not a sample of each. We receive each of them in their fullness because they are revealed in their fullness in Christ, in Christ the living Word. We see full grace and full truth. First thing we understand, grace and truth. I think there's a significant reason that he uses these two. So first, let's get grace. We have grace. Talk about grace being the unmerited love and favor that God shows toward people. Right? It's a transforming type of grace, an irresistible type of grace. 
right? Undeserved, irrevocable, right? Once God sets His grace upon us, it can never be forfeit. It is there forever and continues to do its work if it is truly there. The word grace will be mentioned three more times in this passage. So grace is a big deal. It's a big deal to the church. I mean, in fact, it's one of those things that makes the gospel, the message of Christianity, different from every other message in this world. Is a, it comes down to grace. That we can never earn God's love and favor. We can never merit His salvation. We can never appease Him. It has to be given according to His goodwill and pleasure. I mean, grace and truth are two of the most significant elements of the Gospel. And Christ becomes the very embodiment of both of them. See, that when Christ reveals us, or that Christ is full of grace, tells us that when God reveals Himself, He reveals Himself just as He did to Moses to be a gracious God. A God merciful, compassionate, slow to anger. A God ultimately who saves. A God who reconciles us with Himself. So when Jesus came, He did not give us, He did not come to give us what we deserved, but He showed us God's immense favor by dwelling among men and dying on the cross for our sins and rising the third day, ascending to the right hand of the Father, where He ever lives to make intercession for us. It's a package deal, friends. Grace continues. That's why John will go on to say grace upon grace. Secondly, Christ is revealed as the embodiment of truth. Now here's the scary part. Here's why we need grace. We understand that Christ, yes, He is living truth. He is the living Word. Right? He says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But, it's, but Christ is more than just the personification of facts, right? He is the personification. He embodies the divinely revealed Word. Right? We've kind of just been talking about that. He is the truth of God in human flesh. But that's alarming to us. And that's kind of where the bad news comes. The fact that Jesus is truth. In Him, everything is revealed about us. Right? Nothing can be hidden as the truth is proclaimed. In the person of Christ, everything about our wretched condition is revealed. See, Christ not only communicates to us and embodies the truth of God, right? The truth of the gospel, that we are saved by grace. We find in everything, in that truth, everything that we are lacking, right? See, it's not just about, <laughs> it's not just the truth about how bad we are, it's about how good we're not. <laughs> How much we fall short. That is why it is so important that we have grace. Because once that truth hits you like a dump truck, it is profound and it is crushing to know the depth and tragic nature of our alienation from God because of sin. To know sin's drastic effects on us. An effect that we are completely unable to remedy. That's truth. That's why it's said that grace without truth is hypocrisy and truth without grace is brutality. Because there's something about truth that just brutalizes you, right? It just kicks you down and curb stomps you without remedy. If all we had is truth, we are most to be pitied among men. But in Jesus, we have not only truth, not only the truth of God and the truth of ourselves, we have grace, right? There is nothing that truth 
can reveal about us that grace cannot provide a remedy for. That's why it says, full of grace, full of truth. God will not compromise on the truth about you. Right. He will not compromise the truth that He knows. He will not compromise His righteousness. If the truth about you is that you are unbelieving and that you are a rebel and that you will not repent, that is a sad truth. And the truth of the matter is that you will be condemned. But then enter grace. Grace supplies everything necessary really to overcome the truth of who we are. Right? And the truth is, is that in Christ, by His grace, we become a new man in Him. Right? Think about what Christ accomplishes. Right? There's no law that Jesus could not obey, nor no penalty for sin that He could not satisfy. Even though all that truth comes to bear, because of grace, the truth will not condemn you. That's what makes the Gospel such good news. The truth will not condemn you. In fact, it will do the opposite. The truth will set you free. Right. But the truth will only set you free if grace is the key. Right. It's the only re- that's the only way it can happen. He is full of grace and truth, and neither is compromised in the work of redemption. See, on one hand, God's righteousness is upheld. God's righteousness is upheld because of truth. But because of grace, He sends Christ. He sends the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and truth in human flesh, to pay the penalty for your sin, to be an acceptable sacrifice in your place so that the truth does not condemn you. You will point to a different truth, that Christ saves, that Christ satisfies the wrath of God toward my sin so that I can be with Him, so that I can be reconciled with Him. Listen to what... I read a Piper sermon on this. It was great, great. But listen to what he concludes. When Christ died, God was true to Himself because sin was punished. And when Christ died, God was gracious to us because Christ bore the punishment, not us. One of the reasons I love this quote is because one of the major teachings of the spirit of the age is that you just got to be true to yourself. Rubbish. That's garbage. Know first that God must be true to Himself. As I've said before, don't be true to yourself. Be honest with yourself. That you need the Gospel. That you need the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are promised here in this passage that the Father has given us the living Word, that He has sent His unique, incomparable Son to us, full of grace and truth. No one else, like no one else in history, has been full of grace and truth. But Jesus is full of grace and truth. And if we believe in Him, if we trust in His gracious provision, the truth will not condemn us, but the truth will set us free. We will be saved. That is the good news. And that Christ will come through His Spirit and dwell among us. We will be His people and He will be our God. A couple takeaways from this in terms of our commitment for this year. You know, we're a a gospel-preaching church and I want each and every one of us in here to be faithful and bold when we take a stand and proclaim the gospel. There's a new battle coming, right? There is a battle coming and the church has to be prepared with the good news, with the sin-crushing, life-transforming power of the Gospel, right? A Gospel which overcomes our sins 
and will ultimately see this world come under Christ's reign and rule. Amen. So, what, are we, what is our responsibility? It is to proclaim continually the Word become flesh. It is to give public and visible testimony by the way we live our lives that the glory is here. Right? But the glory continues to dwell with those who call themselves the people of God. It is to walk with God, right? With humble dependence upon Him. So that righteousness continues to transform our lives, right? We are to be those who are full also of grace and truth. Think about that. Think about one of the ways the church is so compromised today. We don't speak the truth, or we just tell part of it, we don't tell the hard stuff. But as we, if we truly are those who name ourselves uh, Christians, those who dwell with God, who are we then to tell half a message, right? Does God dwell with us halfway? If He dwells with us fully, may we give the full truth. And yet may we be just as faithful to offer the grace that accompanies that. Just two, just two applications. We'll get into the rest in a couple of weeks. But for now... May the watching world see our witness that God dwells with us and that we boldly proclaim the power of grace and truth. And I'll tell you, that test is coming to a local church near you. And if grace and truth have not transformed us, we will fail to proclaim it faithfully. So in that light, may God help us. May God help us be faithful and may His Spirit empower us to that end. Lots of work need, needs to be done. And uh, as the Lord is present among us, He, he more than equips us to that ta- task. So uh, let's close in committing this time to Him and as well as the truth that was preached today. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank You so much for uh, Your love to us. We thank You that we can proclaim the Gospel uh, with clarity, that we can preach the good news of Your grace and truth fully embodied, uh, uniquely and, and so powerfully in the person of Your Son. We thank You for our Lord Jesus, who willingly and, and supernaturally and sovereignly added humanity to His deity, took on human flesh, and dwelt among us. Our first thought should be, how gross? How could a holy, righteous, living God want to take up residence with people? <laughs> and yet, that is Your desire. And not only do You dwell with us, Lord, You transform us so we can be Your holy people. So we can be fit to dwell in Your presence by faith. As, your, as we have seen Your Spirit grant us new life through the power of the Gospel. Help us, God, be faithful uh, to reflect on what You have done for us and can you continue to do that we would proclaim the Word become flesh. That we would truly be a people who when witnessed, when our works are observed, when our testimony is observed, it cannot be denied that the God of heaven and earth truly dwells among us. That You are our God and that we are Your people without hypocrisy. Lord, may may we demonstrate that we have seen the glory. The glory of Your Son. And may we be a people full of grace and truth. And we find that even in our own midst, Lord, may we not brutalize one another with truth, but always be ready to speak grace, 
to, to present and affirm and declare Your provision in Christ. Uh, that the Gospel is really, truly all we need. And that it brings a, a truth that will change our lives. And that will ultimately change the world. I pray, Lord, that we would believe that. That we would not despair as the heathens do. That we would not think that all is lost but that as a church we would finally gird our loins and step up and realize that You are doing a mighty work in this world. And that You will have the victory and the Gospel will have the final say. So help us not to despair. Help us not to be cowardly. But help us take forth the torch of righteousness and proclaim the name of the Son of God. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen.